What is science? Well, it is, uh, as far as I can see, a word which is used to bring awe and wonder to all who hear it, or at least it's supposed to. If something is scientific, well, that must be the bee's knees. Well, science was put forward. Um, science is that branch of the search for knowledge which follows the scientific method. And that is a proposition of Francis Bacon. And he put forward that proposition because he noted that nature carries the stamp of the creator, whereas man's reason carries the stamp of his own folly. We will have it that all things are as we in our folly think they should be. That was the problem with all the wisdom which had gone before when reasoning about nature it was relying on man's wisdom. So Bacon put forward the um, he put forward the uh, scientific method to counter this propensity we have for believing what we think things should be like. And the scientific method the search for knowledge about any phenomenon or, uh, or process involves one, observation and measurement. Without observation and measurement, there is no science. Then you search the, for patterns in the observations and measurements, and without observations and measurements, you can't search for patterns. Three, you propose a hypothesis to explain these patterns. Then you design critical experiments to test the hypotheses, to see if they could possibly be true. And if experimental results do not support the hypothesis, then the search for a hypothesis which explains both old and new, the old hypothesis must be discarded in place of a new one which explains all the new and the old. If much experimental evidence supports a hypothesis and none contradicts it, it is considered a scientific theory. And if any observations contradict the hypothesis, it must be abandoned and a new hypothesis sought. So we can see why Dmitry Mendeleev, a very famous Russian scientist who effectively worked out the periodic table of the elements, he said science begins with measurement. And Einstein um, said, what can be measured is science. Everything else is, specular, uh, is speculation. Now, secular humanists hate to admit that science is a Christian discipline proposed by Francis Bacon, a Christian, and practiced initially only by Christians. Many try to pretend that science was started by the Greeks. Now, there was a reason why the Greeks could not do science. They had a whole pantheon of various gods, and those gods got involved in nature. They had squabbles among themselves. They had affairs with 
uh, handsome heroes and fair damsels, and in doing so, they were getting involved in, in nature. So to do experiments would have been sacrilege. Uh, you might be interfering with something that the gods are busy with at the moment. So the Greeks made observations. They did measurements. They put forward hypotheses, but they never did experiments to check them. Now, Pythagoras, for example, he did a lot of mathematics, and he put forward scientific hypotheses. For example, he put forward the hospital... Uh, uh, a hypothesis about the notes run, ringing from hammers of different weights. It was wrong, but he never knew, because he never did the experiments to prove it. Aristotle was perhaps the greatest philosopher who's ever lived, and his writings range over every field of human knowledge. Um, and in science, his biology was quite good, and his physics was all wrong. But he didn't know it was all wrong, and neither did anybody else. And until the Reformation, his physics were taught as truth everywhere. And it was only when the Reformation came along and people started doing uh, experiments, they discovered it was all wrong, and it had been believed for 2,000 years. Now, science could not begin with the Greeks because they had all their gods who got involved in nature. Now, when we go to the Far East, places like India, clever people and then made advances in mathematics, but it would have made no sense whatsoever to look for laws of nature because they have thousands, millions of gods which are involved in nature, and some of them with purposes directly opposite to each other. So to look for consistency in nature, there would be no point. Africa also, there was no chance of science beginning in Africa because in Africa, nature is controlled by the spirits. And the spirits are conjured by witches and witch doctors. And to think that what goes on in the next village will be the same as what happens in our village, well, it would be stupid. They've got different spirits. They've got different witch doctors conjuring the spirits. Why should things happen the same? Now, one might have thought there would be a chance for science to develop among the Muslims, because they at least have only one God. But science couldn't develop among the Muslims because Allah is impulsive, he's capricious, he's unpredictable, and he even changes his mind. So to expect uniformity in nature under Allah would be totally unreasonable. There has only ever been one worldview under which science makes sense. And that is the biblical worldview, the view, the Judeo-Christian view, where we have one reasonable, law-giving, consistent God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It makes sense to look for laws in his creation because he has that kind of personality that makes it possible to look for universal laws. And at the time of the Reformation, when the printing press came into operation, the printing press was put to good use in producing Bibles, so that everybody at last 
could read the word of God. And everybody read of this marvelous creator and they read that he is to be seen in his creation and people wanted to know more of him. They wanted to look into his creation to get closer to him. And one of the first scientists, um, Johannes Kepler, he said the privilege of a scientist is to think God's thoughts after him. Now, Isaac Newton, perhaps the uh, greatest scientist who ever lived, uh, he devised the no laws of motion, principles of mechanics, gravity, calculus, optics, and he said the real value of his work was his pointing to the greatness of God. And Newton spent far more time and wrote far more about the Bible than he wrote about science. Now, following him, Leonard Euler, he would probably be considered the greatest scientist of all time these, day, these days, because today you judge a scientist by the number of papers he publishes. And for 50 years, a third of all the papers in science, mathematics, engineering, mechanics uh, in the world were published by Leonard Euler, and it's all first-class fundamental stuff. He attended Bible study every day of his life. When he was in his cradle, his father took them. When he was old and gray, um, he still gave Bible studies. He was blind, but he knew the Bible in his head. And every day of his life, he attended Bible study. Um, James Clark Maxwell. He uh, put forward field theories, uh, electromagnetic waves. He paved the way for microwaves, radar, rad uh, radio. Um, and he said he got his inspiration and his ideas on how these things work by seeing the way God works in his creation as described in the Bible. Now, the proof, one could say, of the value of science is the inventions that it puts forward. If you're doing genuine research into the creation and finding out about it, you can find ways in which it can be useful to you. Now, Newton, in his work on optics, showed that it would be impossible to get a really good telescope with lenses. And he showed that it would be only possible using mirrors. And to demonstrate that, he built this first reflecting telescope. He built everything about it with his own two hands, and it worked perfectly. And nowadays, all big telescopes are reflectors. They all use mirrors, as Newton pointed out, was the only way to go. And even the space telescope, we look at this and we think, well, wonderful advances of modern science. There's very little scientific advance here. There's a huge amount of technical progress, engineering genius. But that telescope, designed by Newton, the mechanics of getting it into orbit, Newtonian mechanics as refined and developed by 
Euler. The way it's controlled. It's all dependent on the work of Maxwell. Aeroplanes. Again, Newton's laws of motion to get it into, into operation. How does it fly? Well, aerodynamics was developed by Euler. And you can't have a modern airline without a great deal of electronic control and radar and all that kind of thing. The work of Maxwell. Much technical development, but not much advance in fundamental science. Now, secular humanists saw that scientific method worked and had led to stunning results. Secular humanists started practicing science even though the worldview could not explain or support it. Under a, uh, under a secular humanist worldview, everything happens by chance. If everything just happens by chance, how can there be laws? In 1840, a group of American scientists started a scientific establishment with the intention of improving their status. Previously, the word scientist didn't exist. People who did science called themselves natural philosophers. But these people set up the name science and wanted to um, be really people to be respected. They set up rules for acceptance into the establishment. For example, a scientist must have a qualification recognized then by them from an institution recognized by them. Science scientists must publish their work in a publication recognized by them, otherwise it's not recognized as science. Now, to start with, this secular humanist scientific establishment, um, well, it was quite small, but it has grown, and by the time we get to Julian Huxley, they are pretty well in control of the whole of science. Now, there were, of course, still uh, Christians uh, in science, uh, one of the, which is Henry Dale, a Nobel Prize winner. It's interesting to see what he says about science. And science, we should insist, better than any other discipline, can hold up to its students and followers an ideal of patient devotion to the search for objective truth. With vision unclouded by personal or polit political motive, not tolerating any lapse from precision or neglect of any anomaly. Anomalies shows there's something wrong. Fearing only prejudice and preconception, accepting nature's answers humbly and with courage, even if they're not the answers you wanted. And giving them to the world with an unflinching fidelity. The world cannot afford to lose such a contribution to the moral framework of his civilization. Why is he saying that? Because he can see there is a great threat coming up. And that threat is the secular humanist establishment. Now, a typical representative of the secular humanist establishment, Richard Lewontin. And we have a statement on science from him. Let's look at what he said. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. 
in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not the method that the methods and institutions of science compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produces material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is an absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Is he talking about the same thing Henry Dale was talking about? Henry Dale was talking about a search for objective truth. Here, we're looking at extravagant uh, concept, um, extravagant promises, patent absurdity, patent absurdity uh, just so stories, and it seems that the whole point of this exercise is to not allow a divine foot in the door. This is a completely different um, enterprise to what Henry Dell was talking about. Now, when I started with science before, up to about 1960, 65, Every science book I opened had in its introduction, the first thing it said is, science is that branch of the search for knowledge which follows the scientific method. Then from about 1960, the scientific establishment seemed to be waging war on the scientific method, claiming you know, this wasn't ever done by the scientists and it's not feasible and it it's all right to talk about, but that doesn't happen. And then the scientific textbooks in their introduction would start off by saying, it is not easy to define science. Then they would waffle on a bit and end up by saying, science is what scientists do. Well, scientists go to the toilet. Scientists go to sleep. Is that science? Well, it's obviously not a separate, uh, um, satisfactory definition. And eventually, Thomas Kuhn came up with a definition. It was probably one out of frustration or um, uh, irony. And he said, a proposition is scientific if it is sanctioned by the scientific establishment. And that may sound ironic, but it's absolutely true, because the scientific establishment defines science as whatever is published in their journals. Now, the absolute top of their journals is called nature. If anything is published in there, this is cutting-edge edge science. Now, the, the one very close behind it, that's called science. Um, these are the real two top, but there are more. There are others. They are satis um, sanctioned by the scientific establishment. 
by definition, anything published in their journals is science, and anything that is not published in their journals is not science. And they have rules. Certain things are sacrosanct. If you want something published, it must honor these sacrosanct ideas. Evolution. There must be not the slightest criticism of evolution, otherwise you, the censors will, will not publish your paper. You must support billions of years, otherwise it won't get published. There must be uh, naturalistic cosmology only, and the Copernican principle is sacrosanct, that says the Earth is nothing special, it's a little dot lost in the vastness of space, and Einstein's relativity. They are absolutely sacrosanct. You may not give a paper which doesn't support those things. Banned intelligent design or creation. You may only mention them to pour scorn on them. The same with a short time scale. You may not put forward any evidence for a short time scale, but you can pour scorn on it. Alternatives to natural cosmology, not allowed. Geocentricity, the idea that the Earth is the center of the universe, that's the exact opposite of the Copernican principle. And it's because of geocentricity you are not allowed to criticize Einstein's relativity. Because Einstein's relativity was devised specifically to refute all the evidence that shows the Earth is the center of the universe, and without relativity, you can't disprove the Earth is the center of the universe, so it is sacrosanct. Now, there are sanctions against anybody who uh, goes against these uh, laws. If you submit a paper that goes against it, there's no chance you'll get it published. But if you write a book or if you go on television and support one of these things that are sacrosanct or support something that's banned, you can be fired from your job. You can have qualifications annulled. You work for five years at a university to get a PhD. You go on television and point out that evolution is not tenable and that university can annul your qualification that you work for. It's not valid anymore. You're denied publication in approved journals. You're de denied research grants. You can't do research unless you've got a grant to finance it. Research costs money to do. And you'll be denied Nobel Prizes. Now, the first major scientist that I've come across who got into a major conflict with the scientific establishment is uh, Professor Sir Herbert Dingle. He was knighted for his work in science, an expert on relativity. He published uh, books on relativity. And he came across an extremely simple proof that Einstein's relativity is wrong. It doesn't even need any mathematics. It's a simple, logical proof anybody can see, and this wipes out Einstein's relativity. And to his surprise, none of the scientific journals would publish it. And he began looking into this, and he became very concerned, and he wrote a book, Science at the Crossroads, 
in which he points out science cannot survive with this censorship by the uh, scientific establishment. Now, Halton Arp, more recently, he was, until a few years ago, considered one of the top 20 astronomers in the world. But then he started uh, showing, because of his research on redshifts, that the redshifts cannot mean what they're supposed to mean. They're assumed to mean they're a measure of the expansion of the universe. The universe is supposed to be expanding, and the evidence for this is redshifts. And he showed, but these redshifts don't have anything to do with that. And um, because they have nothing to do with, uh, with the expansion of the universe, the whole idea of the expanding universe and the current cosmology, the Big Bang, it all comes into question. He was denied research grants. He was banned from using telescopes. He was unable to do any research. And he was hounded until he resigned. He couldn't do any more work as an astronomer. But he did publish a book, it's called Seeing Red, in which he details this work that he did showing that the redshifts are not what science uh, is saying they are, and that cosmology can't be what they're saying it is because they rely on these redshifts. And he goes on to talk about the ac academic um, science, meaning the establishment, and pointing out how this is, um, it's making real science impossible. Now, Fred Hoyle was one of the most brilliant scientists of the last hundred years. He did absolutely amazing work, and it had to receive a Nobel Prize, but Hoyle realized that uh, the stories about evolution and about the creation of the universe, they're not possible. They have to have intelligence involved. There is no other way to explain. And he wrote this book, An Intelligent Universe, A New View of Creation and Evolution, and that's not allowed. You have to have the view of creation and evolution that the scientific establishment allows you to have. So he was pushed out of his job. He was the head of astronomy at Cambridge University. Or, uh, he was, it was made impossible for him to publish any uh, more work. He couldn't uh, do any more work. He got no funding, and he had to resign. He had to get out. And his Nobel Prize could not go to him, so it went to a minor collaborator, William Fowler. Now, William Fowler was the head of the, um, the laboratory, the linear accelerator in America, which had the facilities to do the experiments Hoyle needed to prove his theories. So he went over to America. He went to see William Fowler and said, look, this is my theory. This is the experiment, which I want to prove it. Um, can we do it at your lab? And he said, no, this is too far-fetched. We haven't got time to do it, to look into fairy stories. So Hoyle went away and he prepared another submission and he kept coming back and back and if eventually Fowler said, well, the only way I can get this fellow off my back is to do his, his experiment. And to his surprise, he gave exactly the results Hoyle said. So 
Fowler was given the Nobel Prize for Hoyle's work because Hoyle had blotted his copybook. Now, around about the, the late 60s, there was a lot of work going on showing that Einstein's theory was wrong. And scientists couldn't publish it in the, um, the journals. So they started their own journal. It's called Galilean Electrodynamics. It was started by scientists who were finding all their research showed Einstein wrong. Now, of course, Galilean Electrodynamics is not accepted by the scientific establishment, so it's not science. But plenty of people were reading it, and the scientific establishment was getting pretty worried. And then Hafili and Keating, two scientists, put atomic clocks on airliners and flew them around the world, and they wrote a paper claiming that these, the readings of these clocks conclusively proved Einstein's theory to be correct. So immediately they had this published in science and became very famous, became, um, you know, got huge promotion in their jobs. But their paper was read by Louis Essen. Now he was generally known as the Lord of Time. He was head of the um, National Physics Laboratory. He was he has been an expert on time all his life. He invented the atomic clock. And when he read their paper, he realized what they were saying the atomic clock could tell them was not true. These results could not come from uh, the atomic clock. And he wrote a paper explaining why this was wrong and that journals would not publish it. So eventually, he published it in CRSQ, which is a Christian um, science journal. And, of course, it's not science, because it's not in one of their uh, recognized journals, but it's read by quite a lot of scientists who, who realize they can't get the real stuff in the journals. <coughs> one of them, Dr. Kelly, <coughs> was intrigued by this, and he got to all the original data, and he wrote a paper on it. And in his, his paper starts, the original test results were not published by Hafeyanin and Keating in their famous 1972 paper. They published figures that were radically different from the actual test results, which are here published for the first time. An analysis of the real data shows that no credence can be given to the conclusions of Hafeely and Keating. But of course this, not being published in the sanctioned journals, is not science, whereas Hafeely and Keating's, although it's all fraud, that's real science because it's published in the science journals. Now, uh, Brian G. Wallace was a professor of physics at uh, the University in Florida, and he wrote a book before he died, the farce of physics. I don't think he would have dared to, uh, to do it when he wasn't close to death because he would have been thrown out. And uh, this book, the farce of physics, it's a very good book. You can get it, download it for free on the internet. And uh, he pointed out what Thomas Kuhn had said, a proposition is scientific if it is sanctioned by the scientific establishment. 
example, if the scientific establishment decrees that fairies exist, then this would be scientific indeed. Now, if you think this is an exaggeration, no, not at all. Um, we've got a picture here of Comet Ikiaseki. It is a typical short period comet. It is quite small. You can't see it here. It's far too small, but you can see the material being blown off by the solar wind. Now, this tail of the comet, it's a million kilometers wide and many millions of kilometers long. This is all material being blown away from the comet by the um, sun's radiation. Ten tons every second, and these things are only quite small. It's been worked out that the absolute maximum time that a short period comet could exist is less than 10,000 years. But there's a problem. They're part of the solar system. That means the solar system can't be more than 10,000 years old. So a, um, a Dutch astronomer called Jan Oort proposed that the solar system must be surrounded by a huge cloud of billions and trillions of comets and every now and again, a dark star, which nobody can see, comes close enough to disturb them, and some of these comets come hurtling in towards the solar system, and they become the new comets, and that's how we can have short-period comets, even though they can only last 10,000 years. Now, Carl Sagan, of course, he's a real scientist, he publishes in those journals, he wrote a book called Comet. And in it, he said, many scientific papers are written each year about the Oort cloud, its origin, its properties, its evolution, yet there is not a shred of observational evidence for its existence. Now, if there's not a shred of observational evidence for its existence, how can they be observed? How can, they be, uh, how can you do any measurements on them? This can't be science. The only difference between this and fairies is that some people claim to have actually seen fairies. <laughs> Abraham Kuyper, who was a theologian, pointed out there will be two different kinds of science, regenerate science and unregenerate science. Well, we don't call it regenerate and unregenerate science. Now it's called creation science and secular science. Now creation science is the science that was done from the start. That acknowledges a creator and it searches for the truth about his creation. And in that, any idea may be considered. Anyone's welcome to pursue the quest for knowledge and the scientific method is indispensable. Whereas secular science, it is not a search for truth. They say, if there is truth, you'll never be able to find it. It's a search for useful, strictly secular theories. Non-secular ideas may not be considered. There's control, censorship, and regulation, and the scientific method is subservient to secular theories. If the scientific method does not go against one of the sacrosanct theories, okay, you can use it. If it does, you can't. Now, the secular scientists say, oh, creation scientists, they're not scientists at all. They never publish research in the accepted journals. Well, of course not. They're not allowed to. Whereas the creation scientists look what's going on and they say, is that science? Well, well, we ask the question, what is science? There seem to be two answers. And one, the one 
we saw represented by Henry Dale, and the other, as we saw, recommend, uh, by Richard Lewontin. In one, we have commitment to the scientific method. We have the search for objective truth, no toleration of anomalies, accepting nature's answers humbly and courage, with courage, even if they don't show you what you hoped they would show you, no political considerations, Political correctness has nothing to do with the truth of science. And it's important for the moral framework of society. The other is a commitment to materialism, as put forward by Lewontin, where they tolerate patent absurdity, extravagant promises, unsubstantiated just-so stories, completely counterintuitive theories, theories that are mystifying to the uninitiated, and there's only one real overriding principle. You cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Now, I personally would call this first one, the one committed to science, genuine science. I'd call that science. The other one I would call science falsely so-called. And I think we have a warning about that in 1 Timothy 6, 20 to 21, O Timothy. Keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. And I can tell you there are very, very many. Particular, particularly people going to universities and coming in contact with these secular scientists who are committed to destroying the faith of the youth. And we ought to take Timothy's warning very seriously. Don't allow that to take you from your faith. Well, I think there's time for some questions, if there are any. Yes. Well, on um, Saturday uh, in the evening, I will be spending quite a bit of time on that. We've got an hour and a half to look at the, um, the universe as, as God made it. What is it? Um, I can't remember if we go into... But um, how Einstein's relativity came about is that a lot of experiments were done which showed to everybody's horror, at least to the scientific establishment's horror, that the Earth is the center of the universe. And one in particular which astounded everybody because it had been so well publicized this experiment was going to really solve this problem once and for all. And that experiment said, the Earth is stationary in the center of the universe. And so everybody looked for, how can we get round this? And uh, the very famous um, 
Irish physicist called Fitzgerald said, well, it must be that as the apparatus hurtles through space, it presses against the ether, and that shortens the apparatus, so it just looks as if the Earth's not moving. And uh, an amazing Dutch physicist called Anton Lorentz, he said, well, look, it must be electromagnetic properties of the ether which just makes it look as if the Earth isn't working. And he worked out the mathematics to show if things do contract by pressure with the ether, and if the ether does have these electromagnetic properties, then these equations would explain it, because it's, they're about the ether. But then people did experiments to show that it was not compression of, of the ether, because they did uh, experiments with birefringent crystals which wouldn't be affected. So it was obvious that this relativity theory that uh, Lorentz had brought up with all this shortening due to the ether, it couldn't be true. So Einstein came up and he said, you've no need to bother with an explanation about ether. We accept um, Lorentz's equations. Now we've got no justification for them, but we accept them anyway. And we say, well, they don't happen because there is an ether. There is no ether. And everybody said, um, well, or, well, yes, if this explains away the fact that they, everything says the Earth is stationary, well, this must be right. So, yes, we accept it. And to this day, there is only one way of avoiding all the evidence that the Earth is stationary, and that is by using Einstein's theory of relativity. Yes. Well, he didn't particularly say, but if you look in uh, Scripture and you see how God is able to um, control everything, um, there, he reasoned there must be fields of, um, of his action, fields of, of his force, which... Um, enables him to effectively be everywhere because this, these fields of, of force, fields of power, they, they spread through, through space. Um, and the things he was, he was able to do, like creating um, all these things, he had to have control over a huge amount of space all at once. And he reasoned this must imply there must be fields that he is operating with. He operates in, in fields that are extending over a large area. 